morning to you all. Four days out from Christmas Eve. Thanks for bringing the church into this gathering, whether uh, you're here in person with us or engaging via the live stream as we've been live streaming this first of two services that we're holding uh, each and every Sunday as it stands now. If we haven't met, uh, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. I'm the guy who most Sundays gets the privilege, the honor of preaching God's word. And this morning is no different in that regard. And so uh, let's not waste any time because this is a glorious story and it must be told and not only told, but sung and danced as we will uh, see and have been talking about now even for a couple of weeks. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter one. We'll be in verses 56 through 80, closing out the remainder of chapter one this morning, which sets the stage beautifully for us to jump into the story of Jesus's birth in Luke chapter two when we come back together just a few days from now. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can track on the screen behind me. We'll have this morning's passage of scripture up there along with any other scripture references and quotes that, that may come up uh, during our time in God's word this morning. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and uh, we'll... We'll jump in and we'll get after it. God, what a glorious time of year as we more intentionally focus on your coming, though we always focus on your coming, but there's certainly a more intensified focus as we joyfully celebrate Jesus, your first coming into the world by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem as we hopefully anticipate your second coming. And we'll get to that soon enough as well, Lord. Thank you for the wonder of Christmas. Thank you for this great story, a story that must be told, a story that must be sung, a story that, that must be choreographed and danced. And I pray that, that we would leave this place singing and dancing all the more, uh, that we would walk away with great joy God, that you might be glorified as we go tell it on the mountain, so to speak, the wonder of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, I plead with you to move in power through the preaching of your word this morning. Apart from your power, this is a futile man-initiated effort. And so I'm desperate for you. Give me a feeling sense of the things I preach this morning. Would you move, would you work in the hearts of your people? Would you draw lost sinners to the foot of the cross? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Luke's gospel account, I love narratives because you see things like this come out to play. Luke's gospel account opens with a couple of birth announcements, two stories essentially laid out side by side for both comparison and contrast. You have the, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, followed by the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, Christ the Lord himself. Two announcements, two pregnancies, two songs of praise, and yet the two stories couldn't be more different. The comparison itself meant to show the contrast for what it is, which Luke is going to continue to reveal to us now through the stories of these two babies being born into the world. If you pick up in verse 56 of chapter one, Luke tells us, and Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Right? Luke tells us that, that Mary stayed with her cousin Elizabeth right up until the end of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Whether she was there for the birth of John or not, that Luke doesn't tell us, but he does go on to say in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. 
And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. The, the promise made to Zechariah, going back to the earlier part of chapter one by the angel Gabriel in the Jerusalem temple is now fulfilled as nine months later, Elizabeth bears a son. Verse 57 alone meant to be a great encouragement to us in reminding us that God fulfills his promises, that his word can be trusted as evidenced in the arrival of this newborn baby. A visible display of the Lord's mercy, verse 58 tells us, which brings out all the townsfolk, right? They all come out to play for this one. After all, we're talking about an elderly mother with a newborn in hand. That's bizarre. You don't see that every day, right? God having overcome Elizabeth's disgrace after all those years of people looking down on her in her barrenness, questioning her godliness, assuming the Lord's curse upon her. In the words of one commentator, Elizabeth, in the autumn of her life, experienced the spring rhythm of labor and birth. That's what God can do. This tiny baby, a miracle of God, the talk of the town, so to speak, leading many to fulfill verse 14, to rejoice with Elizabeth, and you will have joy and gladness, the angel had told Zechariah, and many will rejoice at his birth. The angel's promise now coming true. Even the joy here, anticipatory of the joy that will come in the, the birth of the one greater than John, the Messiah, Jesus. Luke goes on to say in verse 59, and on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And and they made signs to his father inquiring what, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Circumcision on the eighth day was commanded by the Lord. The sign of the covenant God made with Abraham formalized in the law of Moses. You have the neighbors and relatives showing up here for that sacred act of ceremonial obedience, assuming that, that the child will be named Zechariah. It's a pretty good assumption. After all, I mean, who knows if this elderly couple will ever conceive again. Surely this firstborn son is gonna carry on the family name, right? In honor of his father. Except that Elizabeth quickly puts the kibosh on that, offering up a hearty, nope, his name shall be called John. And they push back these neighbors and relatives, assuming like people who, who aren't the parents sometimes do, not only that they know better, but that their opinion deserves a rightful seat at the table. Even going so far as to appeal to Zechariah to set his wife straight. The making of signs revealing here that Zechariah is likely not only mute, but also deaf. Going back to the beginning of this incredible story, you'll recall that God's promise to Zechariah in the temple left him dumbfounded in disbelief as he chose to interpret God's word through the lens of his circumstances rather than interpreting his circumstances through the lens of God's word. Reminding us, as I've said numerous times now, that even the most devout believers need not let their guard down when it comes to the temptation to question the word of the Lord. In this case, such questioning leading to a, a perfect fatherly discipline on God's part in cultivating a, a deeper faith in this elder son as Zechariah is made mute, unable to speak until the promise of a son is fulfilled. A son that we know, going back to the earlier part of chapter one, that God has already named, along with each and every one of, of John's days, which explains 
why Zechariah picks up his writing tablet and writes the words, not his name shall be, but his name is John. God said it. A name meaning God has been gracious or God has shown favor. And speaking of grace and favor, here, here we get this beautiful redemptive moment in Zechariah's life. I, I love character development in narrative as a genre. You see this beautiful redemptive moment in Zechariah's life. His pinning of those words on that tablet in and of themselves, a declaration of belief where there had once been unbelief. The angel said, you shall call his name John. We're calling his name John. And in that moment of belief and trust, we're told that the Lord performs a miracle. Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. After nine months of silence, right? Imagine that, not being able to talk for nine months. Trying to imagine my kids trying to pull that off. Impossible. Possible for adults too, right? After nine months of silence, the first thing Zechariah does with his newfound voice is to bless the Lord. Following the Lord's great miracle with a song of thanks, a song of praise. I mean, think about this for a second. I can't imagine any of us gets incredibly excited at the thought of God's fatherly rod of discipline, right? When we read um, books like Hebrews, later on in the book of Hebrews, and we see this sort of theology of God's fatherly discipline, none of us gets jazzed about that, I'm guessing. And yet, it's God's discipline that taught Zechariah to trust, to believe where there was once unbelief birthing an even more glorious song in his heart. I mean, praise God, and this is strong language maybe for some of us to get our, our minds around, but praise God for his fatherly discipline in our lives if it means we believe more deeply and sing more joyfully. Luke goes on to say in verse 65, and fear came on all their neighbors, of course, right? And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. A healthy fear of the Lord come, comes upon those brought into this incredibly holy moment as they sense that, that the Lord is on the move, like Aslan. And it, it leads to some neighborhood evangelism, right? As, John, as John's fame begins to spread, Luke tells us to all their neighbors through all the hill country of Judea, that those on the receiving end of the good news begin to treasure this good news in their hearts. The many promises of God that, that are to come to fulfillment in and through the ministry of John, pondering the possibilities, the wonders of the things to come in the fulfillment of God's promised messenger and Messiah, which is really a good exercise for any of us, isn't it? Pondering the things of God, who he is, who we are in relation to him, what he has done, is doing, and will do for us in Jesus Christ. Verse 67 tells us, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and let, me, let me just stop there before we even get to this Christmas carol, so to speak, because there's something pretty incredible to consider here, right? We know that Zechariah began this story as a priest, right? We know that that his muteness was God's fatherly discipline perfecting a deeper faith in him so that 
wonder of wonders, before we've even finished up chapter one of Luke's gospel account, Zechariah now has an additional role here in the kingdom. Not only is he solely a priest anymore, but he's a priest and a prophet. His ministry having increased on the other side of this experience of God's refining work in his life. Now proclaiming with this restored, restored voice the promises of God and the hope found in him. A prophetic song that, that's since been named the Benedictus, a song of pronounced blessing. And surely the coming of Jesus is that, right? Blessing upon blessing, wonder upon wonder. A song that amazingly, according to some scholars, includes upwards of 33 Old Testament references, meaning Zechariah knew his Bible just like Mary. <laughs> It's a song that that begins in thanks and praise. Verse 68, Zechariah sings, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah gives thanks to the Lord, praise to the Lord that the promised Messiah and his coming kingdom is near, resting in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the visitation of Almighty God, verse 68. Okay, we could just stop there and ponder that truth, that reality, and our heads would spin if we thought about it long enough. The visitation of Almighty God, God on the scene, Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation, he says, verse 69, the horn symbolic of strength, like the horns of an ox, meaning that that this coming Messiah is a strong savior, mighty to rescue his people from their sins. We we read this just a moment ago in the Advent reading, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Horn of God. In the body of a helpless baby, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, as Paul would go on to say that that helpless baby would go on to live the perfect sinless life that you, you and I could never live, never once yielding to temptation. That helpless baby would go on to die in the place of sinners, triumphing over death through his own death and resurrection. That the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, is mighty to save the greatest of sinners. You come in this morning thinking your sin is too great for God to rescue you, you're wrong. The horn can rescue anyone can cross any line in the sand to redeem. The gospel being, Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation. The horn, the visitation of almighty God in fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David, Luke tells us, verse 69. The promise of a, of a king in David's lineage through whom God would establish his eternal throne. We've talked about this in this series already as spoken by the prophets of old, verse 70, so that the story of Christmas is a story that spans the entirety of scripture. It's a story that God had already begun to tell long before the miracle of a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It's a story that goes back in its promise all the way to Genesis three in the garden, the very first proclamation of the gospel, the proto-euangelion, Genesis three fifteen, here coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Zechariah goes on to sing in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here Zechariah shows us that the story of Christmas goes even further back, even further than David. Here he declares the hope of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and his offspring. God's people delivered from the hands of their enemies that that they might serve him all their days. Some scholars believe that Zechariah might have been thinking partly in political terms here, perhaps longing for a new exodus, so to speak, from Roman tyranny and, and oppression. But it's clear that there's something more here, something categorically spiritual, you might say. God's people rescued from their enemies that they might honor him, verse 74 and verse 75, with lives of fearless reverence and and holy obedience, like in the days of Egypt, when Moses commanded Pharaoh to let God's people go, Exodus 7, 16, that they might serve him in the wilderness. In the words of one commentator, God saves that we might worship. It's what the Lord does in rescuing lost sinners. If you're a Christian, you know this, right? Right? that we've been delivered from our most hated enemies of Satan, sin, and death, that we might glorify God with lives of reverence and obedience, having been set free, God's redeemed, a deliverance that sees its final fulfillment in the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, as he rides in, Revelation 19, on a white horse to bring about the final destruction of his enemies, that his people might worship and serve him forever in eternal peace, never to be disrupted in their worship again that Zechariah's song, like Mary's song, is really the song of the gospel. It's a song that begins with the salvation and redemption that only God could bring about by his grace, and it ends, it, it births lives of worship and obedience to that rescuing God. It's a song that, that Zechariah follows with a, a prophetic word of blessing spoken over the newborn John as he goes on to pronounce the ministry that his son will undertake. If you look at verses 76 through 79, Zechariah says, and you, child, talking about John there, his son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Luke goes on to tell us, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We'll get into that a little later on in Luke's gospel account. John the Baptist, a prophetic messenger, a second Elijah, the forerunner called to to herald the coming of the Messiah, to prepare the way of the Lord, to call Israel to repentance and preparation to meet her God in the coming of his kingdom. A God who, hallelujah, verse 77, in whom there is forgiveness of sins, amen? His coming, his advent, our only hope of forgiveness. A coming signified, I love the poetic imagery here, by by the, the picture of a sunrise from on high, verse 78 dawning on those who sit in darkness, those who sit in the shadow of death. The prophet Isaiah, a very famous passage that comes up this time of year in declaring the coming of the Messiah, says this, 
Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That's the imagery associated with the Christmas story. From the cradle to the cross, a light has shone into the darkness, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. There's a reason we light up the world this time of year, even in our decor. And strangely, though, we don't think about it this way when we look at the lights on our tree, perhaps the lights adorning the neighborhood. Those lights remind us that Christmas is really an indictment before it's a joy. It's a declaration that, that we're far more sinful than we ever imagined, unable to brighten up our own darkness through good works. And yet it's also a declaration that we're far more loved than we ever dared dream. God's love for us made visible in the sending of his son, having come to set captive sinners like you and me free from the darkened dungeons of our own sinful making, you might say. Philip Ryken in his commentary on this morning's passage says, By sending the angel, by giving Elizabeth a baby, and especially by putting his son in the virgin's womb, God was visiting his people. He was entering our situation from the outside because without his intervention, we could never be saved. Salvation is not a human invention, he says, but a divine visitation. It is not something we achieve by going to God, but something God has done by coming to us in Christ. No one is ever saved except by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in his letter to Titus. He says, for the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The word appeared there coming from the Greek word epiphane, which is where we get our word epiphany. It carries with it this idea of light shining upon When you have an epiphany, it's as if a light bulb goes off in your head, right? That where there was once a darkness in thinking, that there's now a radiance of understanding. That's how Paul describes salvation. God's grace bursting forth like a light in the midst of the darkness. That's the story of Christmas. It's the story of the the dawning of God's grace in the coming of Jesus, the sunrise of salvation. As Zechariah says in verse 78, an act of God's tender mercy, guiding the feet of sinners into the way of peace, verse 79. It's a tender mercy that we're gonna see over and over and over and over again as we work our way through the remainder of Luke's gospel account every time we stare into the eyes of Jesus Christ. And it's an overwhelming peace, verse 79, that we will see over and over and over and over again in Luke's gospel account in the lives of those who have had a real encounter with Jesus and been changed by it for the better. I mean, one of the questions that I think we're meant to ask this morning in a passage and with a passage like this is, have you experienced the tender mercy of Jesus? The, The forgiveness of sins that's found in him, verse 79 the light of Christ having shone into your darkness, rescuing you from sin's shadow of death? Do you have the peace that comes in knowing Jesus and knowing the forgiveness that can only be found in him? As I've said before this time of year, this is not about naughty and nice lists. This is not about impressing some divine elf on the shelf. There are no naughty and nice people. There are naughty people and Jesus who came to save naughty people like you and me. 
Philip Ryken, again, to quote him in his commentary on this passage says, after darkness, light, epiphany. This is what it means to be saved. Salvation is like the first glimmer of dawn after the blackest night. Until we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are still living in the darkness of unforgiven sin. But when we trust him, as Zechariah did, his light comes into our lives and we are able to see our way. Believe in Jesus. He, he cries out through a commentary and I cry out from the pulpit to, this morning. Believe in Jesus. The dark night of your sin will be over and the day spring of his light will rise in your heart. It's amazing in God's providence to think this is the last time we come together before Christmas Eve and wonder of wonders that Zechariah's song here, it's the last song before the sunrise of Jesus's entrance into the world in Luke's gospel account, which we will celebrate with fullness of joy as we come back together just a few days from now. But we don't have to wait until then to, to sing the song of the redeemed. The great takeaway this morning is the one and same takeaway as it was last week. Remember, Luke is pairing stories side by side and last week we talked about this, that sometimes the greatest thing we're meant to do as we walk away from a passage of scripture in terms of its application is to marvel and to sing in light of the marveling, to bask with great wide-eyed wonder. Again, going back to last week, the gospel is, is and must be a musical. Chord progressions are, are attached to this great story choreographed steps are attached to this great story that what God has done in Christ demands to be praised, to be celebrated in song. He's the great horn of salvation. He's the sunrise from on high. 